Welcome to Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals, hosted by certified financial planners Justin Brownlee and Jared Machen of Brownlee Wealth Management. The only podcast dedicated to those of you in the oil and gas profession to help you optimize investments, lower future taxes, and grow your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Welcome back to another episode of FPOG, Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals. This week on the podcast, we're going to talk about how to be a better investor than your neighbor. Um, we're going to look at some, this is going to be a research heavy one, uh, where we're going to talk a lot about what does the research say about being an above average investor and uh, what, why, why we think the numbers are what they are, and then also what to do about it. Uh, Justin, where do you want to start this episode? Let's see. How about we dive into the studies themselves? So I think we have a study from JP Morgan. Uh, there's a really famous study from a company called Dalbar that basically says that investors underperform the actual investments that they're invested in, which if you kind of pause and re-listen to what I just said, I don't even know how that's possible, but uh, the research is really clear that it happens. Vanguard has another study that uh, uh, investors do about 2% better over long periods of time if they have an advisor that that helps them manage some of the uh, different ups and downs of, of the market that you're inevitably going to face. Michael Kitsis also has a really good study. So, okay, what did I just name? I went JP Morgan, Dalbar, Morningstar, Vanguard, Michael Kitsis. So a lot of good studies. Uh, where should we go from there? Yeah, let's start with uh, let's start with JP Morgan because it is kind of a combination of of Dalbar. Um, or I think JP Morgan gets their data from Dalbar. But uh, those of you on the video, you'll be able to see uh, this also be in the show notes. But what we're looking at is a chart that shows twenty year annualized returns. So for two thousand two to two thousand and twenty one, uh, what were returns of various asset classes? So. Um, the average, a couple, a couple of numbers here. S and P annualized nine point five percent, small cap nine point four. The sixty forty portfolio, so sixty percent bonds, uh, forty or sixty percent stocks, forty percent bonds, seven point four percent per year annualized. And then uh, a DIY investor averaged three point six percent. Whoa. Which is about just under half of what a sixty forty investor is. I guess one of the things that I don't know in the notes is how is this you know is the is the average investor closer to the s and p? So is it lagging by a multiple of three or is it closer to a sixty forty and lagging by by a multiple of two? Either way, that is a remarkably high number or a remarkably low number relative to the other numbers. Yes, it's pretty amazing uh, when you think about making nine and a half percent a year, or if you're in a diversified portfolio, seven, seven and a half. And then if you do it on your own, only coming away with three and a half, um, that's that's pretty wild. Yeah. But I mean, it's just it's a testament to like how hard investing is, right? So like like you we could have called this podcast how to beat the market. Right. Like, so a lot of people talk about that idea of like beating the market, like risk adjusted returns. But like, the research is going to uncover this over the coming episodes. But that's the dirty little secret is everyone, even professional investors, which we'll talk about here in a little bit, like underperform the benchmark they seek to beat on average, which is a hugely, hugely important idea because it changes how you think about portfolio construction and, and the active bets you want to take. It's kind of the paradox of investing. Uh, Jared, what did what did we talk about before we started recording? 
kind of that famous quote that, you know, when we were kids, you might've put this in your aim profile, but if you shoot for the moon and you miss, you're still going to land among the stars. Uh, and in investing, oh my goodness, it's the total opposite. You really don't want to aim for that. In a real sense, you want to be average. Yeah. Yeah. And that's really, you know, like this, like case in point, the, the point of this episode is how to be an above average investor is to like aim for average, right? The problem is like, it, it ultimately boils down to overconfidence, right? Everybody thinks they can beat the market. They think this, you know, market with crazy amounts of volume and a bunch of professionals, investors determining the fair value for price. They're basically saying, hey, all that's wrong. And me, and despite my human flaws, you know, behavioral finance, a whole field that talks about, you know, shortcomings and my emotion with money. But they, despite all that convention wisdom, I'm going to, I think I can do better on a risk adjusted basis, uh, which the evidence points to not being able to do. So just by owning that reality, I feel like in really understanding how easy it is to do poorly uh, just helps you approach it with humility. So Justin, let's talk about the next study. So that one, so there was a, and I, I don't know what the, I don't know what the average investor was invested in that JP Morgan quotes Dalbar, but you know, 300, 300, 3% at least in a behavior gap. And, and of course, all of this is so kind of hard to tell. So the next next one we'll look at, uh, and we're of course we're link we'll link to all these in the show notes. So Vanguard has an awesome article. Uh, also talks about the value of advice, and they have a line item called behavioral coaching, which is basically helping you remain invested. And they project the value of that as zero to two hundred basis points, which is two percent. So the value of having an advisor uh, kind of protect you from your own investment behavior could result in. 2% a year more in additional uh, portfolio returns just by just by having the behavioral coaching. And, you know, I do want to pause real quick. So Jared, we talked about a three and a half percent delta in the JP Morgan study. We, you just mentioned at least, you know, well, a range, let's give the range. So somewhere up to 2% in a delta with this Vanguard study. I think it's important to kind of reframe and reiterate a one, two, or three percent difference over twenty years is an unbelievably huge amount of money, and so it's easy to we hear two percent, and the human brain thinks that's a really small number. So we think that's really, really small. Let's say you've got two million, four million, eight million, or eighty million. Uh, really, any of those balances, whatever your asset level is. If you do 2% better over the next 20 years, for most of those balances, I mean, we are talking about millions of dollars in difference, a, a huge difference. Or if you're if you're wanting to enter retirement, we might be talking about the difference between running out of money or not. Yeah, that's exactly right. And Kitsis' study kind of talks on, talk in that same vein. Uh, shows the value of uh, this. This one's a great one. Like we'll definitely want to link to it, but uh, it talks about the value of behavior, behavior management, but that is like one of like the lesser benefits, right? That plus like he's behavioral benefits, unquantifiable and priceless. So like these can be the difference in, in millions of dollars, right? And there's some tangible tactical benefits with rebalancing and managing your behavior. But Justin, like all three of these really touch on an idea of like this idea of like the behavior gap, like the average investor underperforms the benchmark they seek to track, right? And like we can talk for days about what is the right benchmark. And I think a lot of people would say 
the 60 40 because it's easy and it's just kind of universally understood but like i wouldn't even say that's a good benchmark but that's outside of the scope of this conversation like why do you think or why is it that that gap you know whether it's one percent two percent three percent what we're saying is the gap is there it's well observed in the research research and it can make a material difference in your your ability to live and retire well why why is that why is it and i think the reason why there's a behavior gap is because there's behavior problems so there's behaviors that almost every investor is doing that will inevitably mean that you're going to mess up the investment somewhere jared i also want to just give a quick definition so you know dalbar was some of the research in the jp morgan study that we have linked and i mentioned something about dalbar's research uh, from about 10 20 years ago so they actually did studies that that monitored one what did an individual index or mutual fund do over a five ten year period and then they followed that up and said everyone who is invested in that particular index or in that particular mutual fund what did they do so you know in the beginning i made that comment and said you might want to try to go back and re-listen to what i just said because it sounds absurd that's what's happening let me give a real life example so let's say that Dalbar is saying over 2000 to 2005, the S&P 500 did, I don't even know what it did. We'll just say that it did 4% a year. If it did 4% a year over that five-year period, Dalbar's findings showed that the people who were actually invested in that S&P 500 index fund, they did not do 4% a year. They did 1% or 2% a year. So how in the world is that possible that an investment does 4%, but the people who are investing in that investment only do 1% or 2%? And it's pretty simple. Uh, it's because they're buying at the wrong time. They're selling at the wrong time. They're going in and out, and they're not willing to hold that investment for the entire duration. That's right. Yeah. The stock market is the one thing in the world where when stuff goes on sale, people run away. Everything else in life, things get cheaper and we get excited about it. Right. But like, and, and stocks, the reason they get cheaper is something like short term happens, like narratives change. There's like a reason stocks are cheap, right? So you're getting the same companies that you could have bought a year earlier at, at a substantially discounted rate, which is, which is great from a long-term perspective, but there's a reason why they're on sale, right? It's at, it's out of style this season. Things are changing. The, the, the future looks a little gloomier. So like there's, there's reasons as to why that is, but right. Kind of get, alluding to what you, what you're talking about, there's, like, okay, what is my benchmark? And then remaining invested is like, is a big part of it. And the, the, the problem with market timing is, is, is it defies this logic of like, when, when you're the most bearish and the most pessimistic, that's probably the best time to buy, right? Or when you're the most, or when things are going the best and the stock market's ripping, that's probably time to take some chips off the table and, and diversify and manage risk. But behaviorally, those things are so hard to do, right? When the euphoria and the money printers go in and there's just lots of money being made. You know, the, the fear of missing out is a big driver of this in human behavior. So even just kind of like understanding, but the, the problem with, right, kind of Justin, really what you're talking about is market timing, trying to get in and get out. It's the worst thing to do, right, for for your wealth because there, there's a problem is you have to you have to get out at the right time and then get back in at the right time. So like even if, you know, even if in 2008 you said, hey, I, I think things are going south, you get out of the market and then things do go south. When when are they going to go north? When are they going to go back in, right? You hear horror stories about people that 
took all their money out of the market and they got the call right. But the problem is they never got back in and they missed, you know, their money three Xing over the next decade. That's a great point. And if you think about underperforming because you make a behavioral mistake, uh, if you underperform by 2%, uh, and you know, we already said that's for a lot of people, that's, that's millions of dollars in lost returns. But the difficulty is the vast majority of those returns all happen right at the beginning of the recovery. So every one of these studies, Morningstar, Vanguard, Dalbar, JP Morgan, they're all saying the same thing. It's if you are, are allocated in the wrong way, especially early on over long periods of time, it is near impossible to make that up. The cost of, of being wrongly allocated at the beginning of a 10, 20 year period becomes huge. Yeah. And I, there's like another indirect like thing is when you're, when you try to time the market by getting out, like you begin to root for pessimism, which is just a really tough behavior to shake. Right. Because like to be a, a investor in capital markets, you have to be a long-term optimist. You have to believe that people are going to continue to innovate. The businesses are going to continue to deliver value to the world and to their shareholders and that things are going to improve and that people are going to go to work and develop new businesses and new product lines because they want to solve a problem in the world. Right. And so when you're pulling out of the market, you're, you know, you're basically taking the short-term view and rooting against that. So like, even if hypothetically you get it right, it's like, what it does to your psyche, like you just kind of like expect trouble over every corner and you just become overly pessimistic. And, you know, I think one of the worst things that can happen is you could try to time the market early on and get it right. Right. Cause it could give you this false sense of like overconfidence. I think the most dangerous person isn't the person who tries this and then, you know, gets, gets their lunch eaten. Cause you know, the markets are really brutal, but the person who succeeds in this and then develops a false sense of overconfidence, because really that's, that's what all this comes down to is, is, Hey, I think I can do better than the market, or I think I know something the market doesn't. I think that I can manage understanding of financial data and my behavior well enough to get out of the exact moment and get in at the exact moment. That's really good. Uh, we said this in another podcast, have no idea which episode it was, but a huge part of the way media portrays investing and like if you're talking with neighbors or you're at the water cooler at work and you're chatting about investments, so many people talk about investments as if they have a leading edge and well, I'm buying, you know, Salesforce because I'm confident the stock's going to do this, this or this, or I'm shorting Salesforce uh, because we're in a tech bubble and, and it's going to do this, this, this. But so many people, the way they approach, think, and talk about investments is with an assumption that the market price is wrong and they know more about the market price. So they start with the assumption that the market price today is wrong. And I can't say this emphatically enough. That is insane. The market price you should always assume, you should always assume that the market price for any fund ETF stock that you see today, that market price, that is a live market price. If we're, you know, at 253 on a business day, the market's open right now. The current market price of any security is taking into account all of the knowledge of every market participant in the entire world. So you should assume that market prices are correct and that should influence the way you invest. Yeah, I don't know where to attribute this, but I think it was Ted Seides uh, on his Capital Allocators podcast. But he talks about the idea of subsidized price discovery. 
So one of the things we get as investors, at, uh, like uh, passive mutual funds, is all of the greatest hedge funds in the world are buying and selling and creating markets and a bid-ask spread for companies, right? And we're not doing all this investment research, but hundreds of analysts and management teams and professional investors are doing it to generate what they think is a fair price based on whatever future variables they're discounting or taking into consideration. And we don't have to do that due diligence, but we get it embedded in the prices that we buy because that's where the bid-ask spread is. So that's kind of an interesting idea, thinking about the idea of subsidized price discovery, right? And just really getting to take advantage of that. But Justin, that's kind of the the second point of this is like, hey, there's a behavior gap with individual investors. You would think surely with professional investors and mutual fund managers that it would be better, right? That it would be a different story because they, ha- they have an edge or they, you know, or, or they do this professionally. Surely they must have better outcomes. But I think- like that's the next thing I want to talk about, right? Is like we have this great uh, resource that talks about the mutual fund landscape, and it talks, it compares um, the mutual fund over ten year periods, uh, and it, it tracks its benchmark. So basically, it'll look at so if if you're running a U.S. large mutual fund, your your goal, your benchmark, the thing you're trying to beat is a large cap is a large cap index. Uh, if you're a mid cap manager, the thing you're trying to beat is maybe the the Russell 2000, uh, or if you're trying to beat a U.S. total market, maybe Russell 3000. So it tracks equity mutual funds, which is a group of professionals investors managing money, and how on average how often do they survive and then beat their benchmark over various time horizons. So uh, this one shows over the last ten years uh, the number of professional so of mutual funds, so professional investors that have survived about 64 percent. So you got a two and three chance of surviving. The odds of you outperforming, so beating the benchmark that you seek to track, is under thirty percent, which is it's twenty six percent, which is just insane. Thinking about that, like the average professional investor, so managing a mutual fund who literally does this for a living, the odds that they beat the benchmark they seek to track is twenty six percent. And if you go, if you extend that duration over twenty years. Uh, the odds of you, uh, of that mutual fund outperforming the benchmark is only 18%. So the further out you go, the worse the data gets. Justin, what do you think about that? Yeah, it's really pretty amazing. Uh, when I worked at one of the largest fund companies in America, we uh, got to hear from and we got to read insights from some of the portfolio managers. And that was always really fun. Uh, but it was fascinating to see that anybody who runs this portfolio, so if you're in charge of an ETF or a mutual fund, uh, especially at a big firm, I mean, your resume is impeccable. You have multiple Ivy League degrees. You're you're one of the smartest people in any room you go into. And the vast majority of those people cannot beat the market. And so again, we want to repeat that idea that if you're looking at the investment universe with the assumption that you think market prices are wrong and you know something better than all of the other market participants in the world, it's probably wrong. That's the thing, right? Like if you look at an individual investor, uh, if you look at it like individual investor, it makes sense as to why uh, why the performance would be bad. Like you, you think it would just, it's just an individual investor issue, but like institutions, the results are no better, right? And so that's a huge, huge thing to understand. But like it gets back to what's at the core of the issue, which is, overconfidence. So Justin, the data is clear. Like 20 year period, the odds of you outperforming the equity mutual fund outperforming its benchmark 
So less, you know, less than one in five chance over a 20 year period. So it's like, you know, it, it's weird because on the one hand, we talk about the behavior gap and it says, you know, the research we're talking about says an advisor can help with that. And on the other hand, it says professional investors underperform their benchmarks. So how can an advisor help, right? Because like what I would caution our listeners, if any, if any advisor's value proposition is, I trust me, I can beat the market or like, hey, most people, the data and research says most people lose, but I, I win, right? That sounds like a classic case of overconfidence to me. And I would, I would run from that proposition. So like, if, if that's a value proposition for your advisor, I, I think you got bigger issues. But like, how does an advisor help with this? I got to add a sentence into that. You know, go back to what I said. If the best fund manager at Fidelity, who has a degree from Harvard and Yale, and the highest paid analyst at Goldman Sachs, if they can absolutely are not able to beat the market over long periods of time reliably, if they can't do it, your random advisor from Katy, Texas, absolutely can't do it. You know, again, that's kind of another one of those lines. Hit the go back 15 seconds and listen to that again. If the most brilliant people in the world of finance cannot be relied upon to beat the market, your random advisor in Katy, Texas definitely cannot either. Okay. Where, where were we going, Jared? So then like, what's the value of an advisor, right? Because like, I don't know about you, but I tell people like, I'm a financial advisor. And like, they're asking like, okay, what stock? Like, I, that's the number one question I get from like people off the street. I'm like, so what are you buying? And it's like, what? It's, and then I have to kind of explain it's not really how it works. And then I talk about being diversified and then their eyes glaze over and they get really bored, right? But, but so what's the value of an advisor and how does it, like, what are you to do in light of this? So like, basically we said, hey, how do you be an above average investor? And we've just said, hey, like the odds are you're going to be a terrible investor. All the data and research says so. So like, what it, what is a client to do or what is someone to do? And like, does an advisor still make sense to them? All right. So a couple things. One, go to the Kitsis study in our show notes. I love that study because Kitsis is saying the same thing that Morningstar, Vanguard, JP Morgan are all saying. He's saying that you can likely avoid big mistakes and, and have better returns over long periods of time if you hire uh, a, a financial planner, likely a CFP. Um, so Kitsis study is saying that, but he goes into detail on how. He's saying a really good fee-only advisor should help you navigate big tax decisions. They should help you build a diversified portfolio across several different tax registrations. They should help you pick lower cost funds. They should help you avoid behavioral mistakes like staying invested in all parts of the market, even when some of those parts of the market are really struggling. And so Kitsis does a good job in his study of outlining, you know, there might be 5, 10, 15, 20 things that an advisor is doing. And Jared, I think the easiest way to say it is a really good fee-only advisor should be able to help you make great financial decisions in dozens of areas over long periods of time. And if you make dozens of really good decisions over really long periods of time, yeah, those are going to compound. And that's going to be quite the force. I would also say, Jared, you need to have a vetting process if you're interviewing advisors. You do need to ask them point blank. Uh, can you? Are you trying to beat the market? Can you beat the market? And if their answer is yes, and they have some back-tested model that shows it, I mean, again, you know, smartest people, highest compensated people in finance cannot reliably beat the market. 
So your random advisor in spring isn't either. Yeah. And, but I guess my second question would be, even if, you know, the back test is your next question should be, is that gross or net of fees? Right. Cause like, Ooh, yeah, that's that, that. So one of the big things is I'll, I'll point back to this dimensional piece, but um, the interesting thing, it also looks at the, the mutual fund performance and it sorts it, uh, sorts it into four tranches, basically the, the most, exp- the, you know, four different categories sorting from most expensive to least expensive. And there are linear correlations to all the funds uh, and basically how their odds of the beating of the benchmark go up. Uh, the lower the expense ratio is. So over a twenty-year period, uh, the the lowest the lowest quartile uh, of expense ratios, the odds of outperforming are thirty-one percent, and for the highest uh, the highest quartile, the odds of outperforming are six percent. So like one of the good ways that an advisor can help you is by keeping costs low. So you know, like eighteen percent odds of outperformance is low, but there's a linear linear relationship between how much are you paying and and are the odds in your favor? One of the easiest way to put the odds out of your favor is to overpay. So a good advisor should help you kind of manage costs. Um, Justin, what else would you say? Man, I can't even remember which article I wrote this in, but we have an article on our website that highlights a T. Rowe Price large cap fund. And this mutual fund had done 14% over the last 10 years on the surface. That's so amazing, right? 14% over a 10 year period. In reality, I mean, it was a horrible fund. The index that it's tracking did 16% over that 10-year period. And it owned the same stuff. I mean, it owned almost the exact same stuff, but was way more expensive. And as a result, all of a sudden, yeah, you're 2% worse off, which again, we're talking about huge, huge amounts of money when you lose 2% over a 10-year window. Yeah. Like I want to take this a step further as far as the investment piece, because like it's kind of nebulous. Like how does an advisor help you shrink the behavior gap? Right. And there's really a few different ways it does it, right? Like we help set up an asset allocation, right? And ideally your advisor should be evidence-based, like big, like, okay, what, what markets am I including? What are the weights and all those? It should be a very scientific process that follows research, right? So it's not discretionary. It's not buying or selling this, right? It's having, it's having an asset allocation that, that considers, you know, all capital markets assumption, past past performance, and your goals in your life, right? So having a good investment mix. Rebalancing is another big thing, right? Prudent risk management. So, you know, if you're a 70-30, and let, let's say that's the benchmark you've decided to track, if you leave that static, equity is going to creep up over time, right? So having a mechanism to rebalance uh, also helps increase your odds. And another another benefit of that is, is, is you develop better investment behavior by naturally rebalancing. Because what happens is, you are selling things that are overweight and buying things that are underweight, right? And one of the things we talked about is like, you know, getting good values, valuations on the on the companies you're buying. But if you're buying the hot stock, you're paying top dollar for it, right? But by rebalancing, you're natu- it's a natural mechanism to sell what's performing well and kind of realize some gains, take some chips off the table and allocate to what's underperforming, right? So um, those are some big ways, right? And then just kind of delegating the administration of your portfolio, right? Insulating you from making portfolio decisions, right? We, for the majority of our clients, we manage on a discretionary basis where they're not having to decide, oh, what, you know, how do, how do I feel about emerging markets today or tomorrow or, right? We, we have a dynamic, we have an asset allocation. We stick to it regardless of our feelings because we know, and the research shows that feelings can be one of the most detrimental things. Like our, and Justin and I, like our portfolios, you know, we're in the same models we have our clients in and we're not, you know, we're not making tactical allocations. We're, you know, buying and selling the same stuff at the same time. 
Yep, that's well put. Jared, I think I'll just cover three quick temptations that that cause really poor investor performance. Um, and so the first one, we've discussed this. There's a temptation to go in and out of the market. Now, that's market timing. And a lot of people hear this and they're thinking, well, I don't do that. That's kind of 101. Like if you read or Google, do any amount of research on how to be an investor, not timing the market is one of the first. And so that might not be you, but there's also a temptation to deviate from poor performing parts of the market. And so what do I mean by that? Well, if you look at the last 50 years and you look at what was good and what was bad in the market every five or 10 years for the past half century, I mean, without fail, you're able to look at a given point in time and what had what had done really poorly across the global stock market for the previous five or 10 years almost certainly was going to do really, really well for the next five or 10 years. So let me give you a quick example. There's this famous Newsweek uh, magazine cover that talks about the death of equities in 1979. Uh, because Jared, what did the US stock market done for the previous 12 years as of 1979? Not good. Yeah, it was horrible. I mean, it had a terrible, terrible 10, 15 year stretch. So, you know, this thought becomes mainstream that, hey, why would you put your money in the stock market? That's crazy. And interest rates are high. You know, we can get a guaranteed 12% in a CD, something like that. Well, 1979 was basically the greatest time of the past, you know, 100, 200 years to put money in US stocks. I mean, that is the moment you want to be a buyer. Uh, Jared, what was sentiment in 1999? Oh, it was like through the roof, right? You could take any web domain, you could take public, it, you know, have money thrown at you. Not... Not very different from the zero interest rate environment we had in 2022. Just market was frothy. Yeah, absolutely. And so this thought was, gosh, let's keep pushing this. And you know what? Let's not just put more money into the stock market. Let's put more money into tech companies. And then the bubble burst. It does really, really poorly. Uh, we were talking about this before we hit record. What was really popular in 2006, 2007? Oh, yeah, it was brick. Yeah. Brick. I remember hearing this in all my classes. I, I remember hearing it on the news. Brazil, Russia, India, China, the population demographics, their growth rates, free markets beginning to come to some of those countries. The growth potential was insane. And a big reason for that, if you just owned an emerging markets fund in 2007, I mean, you almost 4X'd your money over the past seven years. Uh, and during that seven years, the US wasn't nearly as profitable. So it became really popular to talk about, hey, these markets that are you know emerging, let's let's invest there. But what happened in emerging markets compared to U.S. for the last fifteen years? There hasn't been a compelling case for diversification. Absolutely, and we can see the same thing right now. Uh, you know, for the past five to seven years, there's been this prevailing thought that just put your money in QQQ, which is a you know, an ETF that tracks technology companies. So if you can just buy tech companies, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google, uh, I guess Meta would be what you'd call it now. That's where you should allocate money. But obviously for the past 12 months, that's been absolutely crushed. So again, part of being a good investor, we, we, we talk about this idea that investing is hard. And the reason it's hard is because you need to own things that look bad. And 
you need to own things that look bad for a long period of time. Yes. Right? Like, like I'm looking at this chart from DFA, like value beating growth uh, over rolling 10-year period. So going back to 1975, so 75 to 85, 76 to 86. On average, over 10-year periods, 91% of the time, value beats growth. And that's interesting because this last decade, growth has beaten value, right? So then there's questions of is growth dead or this, that, and the other. But think about it. If you're an investor and you live 100 to make the math nice and easy, that doesn't mean growth's never going to outperform value. That means there's probably going to be a decade where you look silly for owning any value stocks. And this past decade has been a great example of that. But the but the decade before and the decade before, all great performance for value. So not only do you need to own underperforming assets, you need to own underperforming assets for a high degree of time uh, and have a high degree of conviction because things, right, there's a big difference between, and this is part of what an advisor can help you with, a good strategy that's out of favor or a bad strategy, right? And so those two things are not the same. So, you know, part of what we're doing is trying to educate, right? So people have have a clarity, have a plan, but also a high degree of conviction because being diversified means, means you're always saying you're sorry. You're always going to own stuff that's underperforming and you sometimes you'll own a lot of the stuff that's outperforming. But that's, you know, but that gets back to how we invest, which is rooted in humility because the data and research shows that picking stocks or trying to beat the market is really hard to do. I'm going to make a prediction and we're not really prediction people, but here it goes. If we fast forward to 2030, you know, there's maybe 10 different parts of the investment universe that you can invest in between US stocks, large stocks, small stocks, international, emerging markets, alternatives like private equity, uh, real estate, long-term bonds, short-term bonds. So if there's eight or 10 different parts of the investing world that you want to categorize, Jared, I'm going to say that there's going to be multiple parts of the investment world in 2030 that are in the top half for today to 2030. And they're going to be pretty high up on the rankings for best returns. And they look pretty bad right now. That's exactly right. That's, That's exactly how it right. always goes. 2009, Warren Buffett, Ted Seides, they make this famous bet where Ted picks a hedge fund, Warren Buffett picks the S&P 500, and they have a bet for a million dollars to charity. Who's going to win, the hedge fund or the S&P 500? And it was really popular at the time because the S&P 500 was horrible for, from 2000 to 2009. Hedge funds were where you wanted to put your money. Long story short, I mean, Warren Buffett just torched them. It wasn't even remotely close. But the takeaway from that is not, well, always put all your money in the S&P 500. The takeaway is whatever looks really bloody and awful right now is probably going to be a really great investment because the price you pay for an investment matters. That's right. So really, like it's it's funny because it's like it's simple but not easy. Ooh, the best yeah. way to be an above average investor is to recognize your inability to beat everyone else and own the market and protect yourself from your behavior. Right? Like it's really that simple. Keep and keep costs low. I would say those are the three things you could do. But it's very hard to do. So that's how to be a better investor. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, what thoughts or questions you have or ideas you have for future episodes. Podcast at Brownlee Wealth Management. Thanks. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. You can subscribe or connect with us at brownleewealthmanagement.com or send ideas for future episodes to podcast at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.
This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed during this show or episode should be viewed as investment, legal, and tax advice. If you have questions pertaining to your specific situation, please consult the appropriate qualified professional.